0: Can you imagine if I got a text from Larry Bird asking me to... <laughs> <laughs> Jermaine knows this isn't even happening, but, but work with me here, asking me to come down to Banker's Life Fieldhouse and rebound for him while he's shot. Now if you know me at all, you'd know how I would respond. I, I would not say, um, Larry, you know, I've got, a, I've got a few things going on today, I need to clean out the garage probably should rake up a few leaves. I'll I'll maybe catch you later. Thanks for the invite. No, I would drop everything I was doing, except maybe preaching at College Park Church. (laughs) And I would be down at Bankers Life Fieldhouse to just get close to greatness. Now, Larry Bird's from my generation. Maybe Steph Curry is from yours. So imagine this now, a little bit harder, but let's say Steph Curry called me up and said, Nate, I need you to come to an actual NBA game, and I need you to stand right here on the court and set a pick for me so I can curl around it and hit one of my sweet three pointers. And you're looking at me and saying, with that body? <laughs> In those ridiculous clothes? That's not going to happen. The closest you're going to get to a court is the stands. And, and that's actually true, because a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to go down and get close to greatness, and I was at a Pacers game, and we got to sit, thanks to some folks in the church, right behind the Pacers bench. We were on TV, and when Brad Merchant sent me this picture, (laughs) it was such a glorious privilege that I tweeted it, I sent it out to all my friends and family, because I wanted them to know that I was now famous. all of us have a little bit of that in us, don't we? But maybe hoops are not your thing. But but what, for instance, would you do if Bobby Flay said, I want you to come and crack a few eggs for me on my next cooking show? Or if Christopher Nolan said, I want you to come and hold the boom mic for me at the next film that I make? Or if Ralph Lauren said, could you send me a few of your drawings of dresses because I'd like to add them to my portfolio? Or if Dave Grohl said, would you come and be a hand at my next concert? What would you do in those situations? He said, I think we all have somebody in our lives that we would drop everything for because of the privilege of working together with them. And that's what our text is about this morning. As I've thought about it, our interest in a job is equal to the importance of the person who asks us to do it Times the significance of the job that he or she asks us to do. And so I realize I'm not Einstein and this isn't exactly E equals MC squared, but this little formula will help you, I hope, remember and understand Psalm 149. The glory of a job is equal to the person who asks us by the square of how important that person is, the greatness of that person, times the task that he asks us to do to the square of the significance of that task. Did you get all that? G equals PI times TS, and that's our whole lesson for this morning. (laughs) I wonder how interested you are in the task that God has for us. We've been talking about the glorious privilege of serving him, and it is. But I want to help you through Psalm 149 this morning to understand why It is such a glorious privilege. And to understand it, we must know two things. First, the greatness of the person, and second, the significance of the task. And that's what we have in our psalm. First, the greatness of the person, verses 1 to 6. If you haven't yet, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 149. The greatness of his person, because when we know him, we will be singing for joy. Verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. There's something that's happened deep within the soul of the psalmist. He is overflowing with joy and with delight and with praise in his God. So much so that he wants to sing of it and he wants to sing of it together with other believers just like we've done this morning. Why is he so exuberant about God? He goes on and gives us three reasons in the next few verses. First, God is his maker, verse 2a. Let Israel be glad in his maker. He understood that God had made him uniquely. God had knit him together in his mother's womb. And any creator loves what they create. And God as our maker knows us. He understands us. He has a plan for our lives and he's providing for us. And that filled him with joy that he had a maker like God. The second reason, verse 2b, God is his king. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Now this is a slightly deeper level of relationship. It is not just a piece of clay submitting to the potter. Now it's an individual who's been given a volitional will, who has looked at his maker and he's liked what he's seen. And so she has bent the knee and said, now I'm going to make you my creator, my king. I'm going to let you rule over me. And as the psalmist thought about his creator and his king, he said, You are such an amazing king. You are so good and kind and just and merciful and powerful that my heart is bubbling over with joy. So verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. And that's what we've done this morning. We've danced in God's presence. We've worshipped him with instruments because he's our maker and he is our king. The third reason is that God is his savior, verse four. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. This is an unbelievable verse. It says that God takes pleasure in his people. He delights in them. They're not just a lump of clay out there. They're something that he loves. This would be a good time for a grandson illustration, of which we have one two-year-old. And when he comes over to our house, we delight in him. And you can't even explain it. We delight in almost everything that he does. As he grows and learns, it's an amazing experience. And at the end of the day, we delight in handing him back to his parents. But that's just a little picture of what God is trying to say in verse 4. He delights in us. He's made us. He wants to be with us. And because of that delight that He has, what does He do for us? Verse 4b, He adorns or He crowns the humble with salvation. Because He loves us so much, He comes to our rescue. He delivers us. And the Hebrew word used here is the word Yeshua. Have you heard that word before? The one who comes to save. The psalmist didn't understand all that was going to happen, but this word points forward to the the great Yeshua who one day was going to come and save us from our greatest enemy, our own sin. And he was going to crown those who delight in him with salvation because Jesus, the Lamb of God, was going to come and take away the sin of the world and restore us into a right relationship with God. That's how much he loves us. You see, God is more than just an ingenious creator. He's more than just a powerful king. He is a person. He has a personality. He has things he likes and things he doesn't like. And one of the things he likes is being in relationship. Now, of course, he was in relationship in the Trinity for all of eternity past. But one day God decided to create and he made man and woman in his image so that he could relate to them. And he would come in the cool of the evening in the garden because he delighted in his creation when they sinned he provided atonement for their sin when they traveled into the desert he instructed them to build a tabernacle so that he could come and live among his people because he delighted in them when they moved into the promised land solomon there built a temple for him and god came down in great glory to live in this temple because he delighted to be with his people God reminded his people through the minor prophets and the major prophets of his great unfailing love for his people. We've just studied the book of Hosea and seen this, that no matter what we as his people do, how how bad we might mess up, God's love for us persists because he delights in us this much. And even when we're unfaithful to him, he is faithful to us and he pursues us with an unfailing love. And as the psalmist thought about these things, he said, Let us exult in glory, verse 5, and sing for joy on their beds. The psalmist was a nightingale. Nightingales are so named because they frequently sing at night as well as during the day. The song is loud with an impressive range of whistles, trills, and gurgles. Its song is particularly noticeable at night because few other birds are singing. There's nobody else in the world who sings at night other than those who understand how great this God is, who has fastened his affections upon them. And so the psalmist is saying, even when I wake up in the middle of the night, this thought has become so significant and so fresh in my life that that's the first thing I think about. And I'm not sure what his spouse thought when he sang in the middle of the night, but his heart was so full that he sang songs of praise to God in the night. Then verse 6, let the high praises of God be in their throats. He said, there is nothing more important to me, nothing more significant to me than thinking and worshiping my great creator, my king, and my savior God. If we grasp how great God is, we will have the high praises of God in our mouths. Spurgeon said, the thought of the Lord's taking pleasure in us is a mine of joy never to be exhausted. My friends, do you know that today? Is your heart singing? Do you find yourself throughout the course of a day just going back and back again to the amazing love of God who has delighted in you and provided for your salvation? Maybe some of us need to gaze more deeply upon him. Next week we're going to be starting a three-part series on worship. And so this is the beginning of that series. What is worship Worship is seeing our God for who he is and responding in delight and praise and song to him. And we'd be all perfectly content if the psalm ended at verse 6a. What could be more beautiful than this? God's people delighting in him, he delighting in them, them in eternal fellowship and worship and praise. Why couldn't we just stay in this bubble? Forever. Now that will happen someday. When Jesus comes back, he's going to take us to be with him, and we will be with him forever to worship and praise him. But that day is not now. And that's what the rest of this psalm is about. Did you see the second part of verse 6? And two-edged swords in their hands. <laughs> now this is one of the most abrupt turns of thought in all of the Bible. And I hope when you read the Bible, you read it carefully and don't just skim over it. You should be saying, what in the world? He's just been talking about praise and worship and now he's talking about a two-edged sword? And if you're a good Bible student, you might think, well, he's probably talking about the Bible. Because the Bible is a two-edged sword. And we know that it is from Hebrews chapter 4. But the way we're going to find out what he's talking about is to read the next few verses. And what does he say? Verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor. This is the glorious privilege for all his holy ones. It's pretty clear that this is not talking about the Bible. It's talking about a real hard steel sword and that could be a real problem for us. The context is that this is retribution on the nations for their mistreatment of the people of God. But it raises the whole question of the judgment and the wrath of God. Now we're going to take a bite out of an elephant this morning, okay? We're going to try to tackle this one. And it may feel like a rabbit trail that we're going to be on. But it's not a rabbit trail because it's in the Bible. And we're going to see, I think, at the end that this is going to come back and show us why our task is so significant that this great person has given us to do. We need to deal with what we have here. We need to take a giant step back. And John Piper said, in all of your reading of the Bible, don't spare yourself the terrible glimpses of God's wrath. And there are some horrible parts of the Bible. This isn't even the worst of it. Nahum 1:2: the Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. The first few verses of Isaiah 63 are even hard to stomach. The terrible judgments in the book of Revelation, and we could go on and on, much of our Bible is filled with this aspect of the character of God. And and let me ask you this morning, do you want to know God fully in all of his dimensions? Or do you want to just pick and choose what feels good to you, what makes sense to you, what would be a God that you would like? Now you see, that's what the world does. They make a God of their own creation that fits in with their understanding, but Christians don't do that. Christians say, we don't know what God is like, but we read the Bible and we find out what God is like. And God has revealed every single word in here to help us understand him as fully as we're able to. And all of these pieces are in the Bible for us to understand a part of God that we must understand if we're going to know him fully. And we don't need to be afraid that there's going to be a skeleton in the closet. Something embarrassing about God that we're not going to be able to explain to our friends. God is who he is, my friends, and as a follower of his and a believer in the Bible, that's what we want to learn from scripture. So let me just give you a couple of points to think about related to the judgment of God. First, I think we can all agree that judgment is a good thing. I mean, can you imagine if there were no punishments, if there was no judgment, If we lived in a Mad Max world, a dystopian world where there were no rules and no laws, if people like Hitler or Stephen Paddock in Las Vegas got off scot-free, can you imagine what anarchy our society would descend into? There must be justice, and we actually love justice. That's why some of our favorite movies have this arc in it, that you have the bad guy, and then you have the good guy, and then they meet, and they fight, and it's a close battle, but in the end, the good guy always wins, and what do we say at the end? Yes! That's why we love lines in movies like, make my day. <laughs> You're just waiting for that trigger to pop, aren't you? Or, my name is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> You killed my father. (laughs) Prepare to die. And then we love the sword fight because we know who's going to win, and it's close and back and forth, but finally when an eagle puts the sword through the guy, we all cheer. Why? Because justice has finally happened. And we cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 5811. Then people will say, Surely the righteous still are rewarded. Surely there is a God who judges the earth. That's what we want. We want a righteous ruler who judges fairly. But secondly, judgment to be good must be fair because it can be misused. And I'm afraid that sometimes we get the idea that God's wrath is like a terrible forest fire that just burns anything that gets too close to it. And my friends, nothing could be farther from the truth. God's wrath is not indiscriminate. In fact, in Nahum 1, right after the verse we just read, it says, he takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. God's wrath only breaks out on his enemies. So who are his enemies? Short history of the world. God made the world. He gets to make the rules. He made the rules. He told them us here. He told them the rules right here. Anybody who breaks the rules is an enemy of God. Because you've said, I don't want him to rule over me. And what happens to the enemies of God? They suffer the punishment that God has ordained. And what did he say right from the very beginning when he gave the first rule? He said, if you break this, in that day you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. Those whose names are not found written in the book of life are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, which is the second death. See, everybody who rebels against this king, who who breaks his rules, is under the fair and just penalty of death. John Calvin said, when God himself is the author of vengeance, it is justice, not cruelty. It is not surprising that the mercy which is treated with undignity should be converted into severity. You see, God only condemns the guilty. He always judges righteously. Righteously. So then you think, who would be his enemy? Well, all of us have broken his commands and you might wonder why we're even around. Because he could very rightly and fairly have destroyed us the minute that we sinned. And here we learn another thing about God's judgment. He often delays his judgment to give time for repentance. See, Ezekiel told us in chapter 33 verse 11 that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jonah learned through the incident with the city of Nineveh, he said in 4.2, you are eager to turn back from destroying people. You see, our God is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger, and he is abounding in loving kindness. God doesn't want to punish people. He is giving them time to repent and to turn to him but eventually his patience will wear out and he will blow the whistle and the game of life will be over and his judgment will fall on all who are at that moment his enemies. And it will be a just judgment. Well, the final question as it relates to our passage is how does God dispense his justice? And the only way we can find that out actually is by reading the Bible because it's not really your place or mine to tell this king how he should dispense his justice. He's already told us through story and through precept in the Bible. And we find a variety of ways. Sometimes God dispenses his justice immediately and directly. For instance, when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled in the desert, God said, that's enough, and he opened up a huge yawning chasm in the earth. They all fell in with their families, and the earth closed over them, and it was gone. God judged them. Jesus, when he comes back, it says in Revelation 19, is going to judge the nations by the sword of his mouth. The one who by his mouth created the stars and the sky is going to once more speak a word of judgment and all those who are enemies will be annihilated, they will be destroyed, they will be punished for their sin. But in Old Testament times, God often used people to affect his judgment. And surprisingly enough, many times he used pagan people, unbelievers... The book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is surprised that God would use the Babylonians to execute his justice because they themselves are evil and wicked. But God can execute his justice any way he wants because he is the king. And sometimes in the Old Testament, and here's where we get back to our psalm, God used his own people to execute justice. David, for instance, is one. That's what the psalmist is celebrating here, that God had now decided to bring his justice down upon some nations, and he decided to use an instrument called his people. And so he gave them the glorious privilege of being raised up from the mundane duties of ordinary human life and to enter in the activity of God, to be partners with God in fulfilling his mission. And when he does that, he calls it, verse 9, the glorious privilege of all his saints. A word that means, and most often translated in Hebrew, majestic. This is our majestic privilege. To join God in accomplishing His purposes in the world. Because a great person has asked us to do a significant task. That is why this is our glorious privilege. And I wonder if you taste that today at all. But there's one more question that we need to answer that I hope you're asking. And that is, what is our assignment today? We're not going to be passing out two-edged swords today. Because when Christ came, everything changed. To get the answer to this question, we now need to leave our Old Testament text. And we need to go to the New Testament. You see, God didn't change. God never does change. But sometimes His game plan changes. And now we're in something that theologians call the New Covenant. He's working differently now for the same purposes, but in a different manner since Christ came. Commentators on the book of Psalms said this about Psalm 149, the Christian must transpose the letter of this psalm into the spirit of the New Covenant. God's just demands have not changed. The day is coming when all of his enemies will feel the sting of his sword and the fire of his judgment. And here's the amazing truth about the New Covenant. Nobody has to experience the judgment of God. He has provided a way out and his name is Jesus. That's why he's so worthy. He shed his blood so that he could cover us so that he would not have to shed our blood. And so Jesus, before he left after his death and resurrection, told his disciples, here's your mission It's no longer to bring vengeance on the nations and shackle them and do all these things that we just read. No, here's your mission. It's to be a witness to me and all of the world. It's to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all nations, Luke 24. It's to make disciples of all nations. Our job now is not judgment, but salvation. It's not vengeance, but reconciliation. Spurgeon again said, We praise our God after another fashion, We are not executioners of justice, but heralds of mercy. And what would you rather be? This text cannot be used to justify any acts of war or violence, as it has been, regrettably, in the history of the Christian church. Thomas Munzer stirred up the war of the peasants in the 16th century, in which 200,000 people were killed by this verse. Caspar Sclopius used it to influence Roman Catholic princes in the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, and over 8 million people died. My friends, that's a terribly misguided interpretation of Psalm 149. Because we don't live in that old covenant anymore, we now have a different ministry. We're entering into the mission of God, but it's not to bring judgment on people, it's to bring salvation to them. And as Paul reflects on this in 2 Corinthians 3, listen to what he says. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. Now think about that. Was there glory in the ministry of condemnation? That's what Psalm 149 said. Yes, there was an element of glory as they fulfilled God's purposes. But Paul says, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. My friends, there is no glory in killing and destroying. That is not our job anymore. We have been given the ministry of the new covenant that instead of bringing death, it brings life. Instead of bringing condemnation, it brings reconciliation to God. And that is the significance of our task. Is there anything more delightful that we could offer to people than the news of salvation in Jesus Christ? that's why Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We've seen our missionaries up here today and it gets hard sometimes. It may be hard for you to think about how can I continue to witness to my colleague or my friend or my family. The reason we don't lose heart is because God has given us such a significant task. He has allowed us to preach forgiveness and salvation and life. And that should drive us forward in our participation in this great privilege. Where does this message need to go? This great person who's the maker of heaven and earth has a great agenda. And this this is such big news that it needs to go to all 7.5 billion people on the face of the earth. If we just stay where we are, it's too small a thing, Isaiah says. Now we do need to continue to to bear witness. We need to be doing what Paul said. I've gotten a little bit behind here. Let me pull this. This is our mission today in summary. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. This is the message that needs to go to the ends of the earth. It's It's important that we share it with everybody and that you share it with your neighbors. It's important that you neighbor and invite people to our Christmas concert, for instance, an opportunity for them to come to church and hear these wonderful words of life. It's important that it spreads through the neighborhood of Brookside, as we've continued to do through our local outreach. These are important ways that this message is going out. But we need to see globally where this message has gone. And I I know I show this probably every year. But this is a map that guides my thinking and guides the priorities of our church. Because the gospel is available in the green parts of the world. It's essentially inaccessible in the pink parts. And so God wants, I think, us to take this glorious privilege, not just to keep going back to the green parts of the world, but to take it to the red parts of the world where folks had never heard. And that's only half the story. Only about 3% of missionaries work among peoples in the pink parts of the world. Only 1% of Christian giving in the United States goes to take this glorious message to one third of the world. And that's why we at College Park focus on, in our global outreach, unreached people groups. We realize that this is a glorious privilege that God has given, that we could proclaim salvation to the nations, and we want it to go to the ends of the earth. So, where is the glory in this job? First, it's in the honor of working with God. Second, it's in the intimacy that accompanies service and sacrifice. Paul in Philippians 3, in the context of his missionary work and his suffering, said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the 19th century. Within a year of his landing on the island of Tana, he buried his wife and one-year-old child. The people on that island were cannibals. They had eaten the first two missionaries that arrived on that island, but he came back as another wave of missionaries because he understood this was a glorious privilege, that he could bring these cannibals out of darkness into light by just being an ambassador for Jesus. And one day, 1,500 cannibals on the island of Tanna were chasing him, trying to kill him. He climbed up in a tree. He hid there. God protected him. And this is what he wrote about his experience in that tree. He said, The fellowship and intimacy I enjoyed with Christ, based on his promise that, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age, I wouldn't exchange for any other moment of my life. My friends, it is a privilege for God to invite us up into his counsels, into his mission. And when we do that, we know Christ in a fresh new way. That's the thesis of this book, Why God Calls Us to Dangerous Places. We have a few copies left in the Resource Center. They won't be available after today. Grab it and read about growing in your intimacy with Jesus through participating in this glorious privilege. Third, there's a glory in the fruit that he may give. Those islands that John Patton went to were converted in their entirety almost back in his day. That's not always going to happen, but God will bring people into his kingdom through our participating with him in his mission. And then finally, the honor is in the rewards that God will give us. Paul, who worked so hard for this mission, Paul, who said this is a wonderful message that we get to give, said at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. What is glorious about this privilege? Here's part of it, that when we do it, we're storing up for ourselves a weight of glory in heaven that far outweighs any seeming sacrifice we might have given. We don't know what that's going to look like. That's in God's hands, but he has glory stored up for those who jump in and participate in this privilege he's given us. David Livingstone, a Scottish missionary and explorer, spent 33 hard years in Africa, And here's what he wrote towards the end of his life. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? It is emphatically no sacrifice. Rather, it is a privilege. And here's what he went on to say. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this be only for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk, when we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself. For us, The glory of a task equals the greatness of the person times the significance of the task. My friends, is there something in your heart that is resonating with that this morning? Do you understand the greatness of this maker and king and savior who has invited you to come and participate with him? Have you felt the significance of this task of offering the water of life to those who are dying of thirst and on their way to experiencing God's judgment. You see it is because of the impending judgment of God and the offer of salvation in Jesus that this is such an amazing privilege. We get to let people out of hell by proclaiming the gospel to them. Are you a worshiper? It's got to start there. Is your heart singing the high praises of God even in the middle of the night? You see, this is for that. We worship so that we can work. We sing so that we can sweat. Spurgeon said, All the holy ones are sent on errands by their holy Lord. If we do not praise, we will grow sad in our conflict. Missionaries hear that. Church members, if we do not fight, we shall become presumptuous in our singing. We need them both. Even the tumult of our holy war is part of the music of our lives. And I just want to give you a moment to think today. What is that holy war that's a part of the tumult of your life? Or is your life just about getting through the week, getting the kids off to school and paying the bills week after week after week? God has so much more for you than that. God is inviting you up into His councils, into His work, into the work of His kingdom. This great person is inviting you to Participate in a significant task, and that should be our delight. Well, what does that look like specifically? At 1130 in the East Room, there's a call-out meeting. If you'd like to learn more about our three application steps from REACH, which are get involved in a Barnabas team, get to know an international in Indianapolis, or three, go on a vision trip, come to that room next hour and learn more about these opportunities. You see, if we just do everything the same as we've always done it and expect anything to be different, that's insanity. We need to make some changes. And have you, have you tasted the glorious privilege that God is inviting you to participate in today? I'm still looking for a few men to go with me to Dubai in December, and I know that's real soon But if you'd be interested in doing that and in participating in the glory of sharing stories of Jesus with migrant workers from South Asia, December 9 to 17, see me after the service. You see, John Patton also said this, my heart often says within itself, when will men's eyes at home be opened? When will the rich and the learned renounce their shallow frivolities and go to take the life of Christ among the poor? Those who have tasted this highest joy, the joy of the Lord, will never again ask, is life worth living? You see, John Patton understood that it wasn't just Steph Curry inviting you onto the court for a fleeting moment of earthly glory. This is the maker and the king of the universe inviting you to come up with him and participate in this most glorious of all tasks of offering the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, to all who will believe. Will you pray with me? Lord, we have many of us in this room tasted and seen that you are good. We love to worship you for who you are and for what you have done for us. But My prayer is that you would help us to be those disciples of yours who can do two things at once, who can worship and work that those who are so caught up in the routines of life that they've not entered into this glorious privilege, that you would touch those of us today and motivate us, give us a desire, a hunger to enter into your work and to offer this most unbelievable gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Yes, to our neighbors, our colleagues, our city but then all around the world, either directly or through one of our missionaries. Take us and use us. Thank you for our salvation and for inviting us now to partner with you in reaching a lost world. For the glory of Jesus' name, in whose name we pray. Amen.